Our passage today is from Galatians 4.17. It's going to be preached to us by Aaron Ferguson. <laughs> Sorry, I um, Okay, it's going to be preached to us by Aaron Ferguson, who is an intern here at the church. Um, so, if you are able, would you please stand and follow along with me as I read from Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. I'm going to pray for Aaron as he comes up here before he preaches. Dear Lord, um, thank you so much that you have made a way for us to worship in spirit and truth. Thank you, God, that you have given us um, an opportunity to gather, um, and we have the freedom to do that, um, and you have lavished on us grace. And I just pray for Aaron as he preaches your word. Um, God, I pray that um, he will speak um, with deep love, conviction, and consideration. Um, of who you are, and I pray that we would be affected by that. I pray that you would ready our hearts, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us to remember that your conviction is such a grace. It is such a wonderful thing, God, that you discipline and you convict those who you love. And so I just pray that you would help us to keep that in mind as we contemplate this passage today. In your son's name I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning, Marsh Church. So good to see you guys today. Um, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark outlines some of the practices of the early church that helped them to make inroads in the, uh, in the community and gain traction throughout the empire. One of those things was an emphasis on adoption. It was, uh, you know, honestly, a really terrible practice that was practiced in the Roman Empire, where oftentimes if families uh, didn't want a child or uh, couldn't support a child for whatever reason, they would just leave the child somewhere. Um, but Christians in the first centuries really stepped up, and they became known for bringing these kids into their families. Fast forward to the Reformation era and shortly, uh, shortly after that, uh, Christians who were shaped by this renewed understanding of the gospel went crazy starting these institutions like schools and hospitals, but especially orphanages. Uh, if you ever want to go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, um, Google someone like George Mueller or Google the Moravian Church and you'll not be disappointed. Fast forward again to today, and according to a recent Barna study, believers in America are more than twice as likely to adopt 
than the general population, and at least 30% more likely to significantly consider adoption as an option for their family. And I also know that just in this auditorium right now, there's some really cool stories of adoption. And now I don't say all that so that we can you know, collectively give ourselves a pat on the back. Uh, we know that aside from who Jesus is and what he's done in us, there's nothing inherently more generous or benevolent about us compared to other people. But I do want us to consider a little bit why of all the areas of service and love that we could emphasize as Christians, why does it seem that this one, adoption, is so prominent through the ages? I would suggest that there's something so deeply embedded into the gospel message that when our hearts are transformed by it, we can't help but be a people compelled by God's spirit to adopt. And we'll see precisely why that is in this passage of Galatians. Our theme throughout this whole book, as you can see on the screen, has been only Jesus. And today I want us to see together that only Jesus paves the way for us to be adopted into God's family. So let's dive into our passage. Uh, where does Paul go next with the Galatians here? He starts off by noting their prior condition before they believe the gospel. Uh, look at verses 1 through 3. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Let's pause just for a second and talk about some of the background of these verses, because there's some stuff in here that sounds just disconnected from you know, our lives today. Uh, comparing children to slaves, or that we were enslaved to elementary principles. Uh, what does Paul mean by this? Uh, well, in the first instance, he's referencing a kind of ancient way of raising kids. In, in Paul's day, the father of a wealthy family he might appoint one of his slaves to be the primary guardian or instructor of his son. Their job was to bring him up as a proper Roman citizen. And these guardians, these managers, they, they regimented the lives of these children uh, in all facets. Paul is saying, even though the son is higher up on the pecking order, you know, like Bobby said, that firstborn son, he's going to get this giant inheritance, everything that his father owns is going to be his one day. His life as a child is functionally no different from that of a slave. He's told when to get up, when to go to bed, when to study, when to eat, when to exercise. And Paul compares the Torah, God's Old Testament instructions to his people, to this guardian, someone who regulates entirely the lives of the people of Israel. In the second instance, Paul mentions these elementary principles, or some of your Bibles might translate that as elementary spirits. Again, what's, what's that all about? Remember, Paul is writing to a church with a lot of people who weren't originally Jewish, but pagan. And it wasn't uncommon in these pagan religions to see the world in terms of some core elements, core principles, core spirits, and deities behind them. 
And you probably have heard of them just absorbing them through pop culture. Things like earth, air, water, or fire. Um, these were kind of seen as the most basic building blocks of our world. And if you were a pagan, you always knew that you existed at the bottom of a tiny thread at the mercy of these spirits behind these elements. You had to pray and sacrifice and live, you know, live your life in such a specific way as to not take them off and make them ruin your life or torment you in some other way. There are all kinds of you know, stories from Greek mythology where you didn't do it just right and now I'm going to you know, really mess your life up. Um, and Paul calls it how he sees it. If you're under these elementary principles or spirits, you're in a form of slavery to them. And a Kenyan theologian, Samuel Nguyen, says it like this. He says, those who try to obey the Torah are still living like children, surrounded by rules, which Paul calls basic principles or elementary school material. This category includes things like the Jewish law and the Gentiles' cultic rituals. So whether some of the Galatians were previously Jewish, or whether they converted from paganism, or if they were pagans who thought they needed to act like Jews in order to become Christians, Paul is sounding the alarm bells. This is nothing more than spiritual slavery. And I think maybe this is a relatable feeling. Have you ever felt like you're in a form of spiritual slavery? Like you're a slave to one certain sin that you just can't shake? Maybe you know as soon as you see that big dessert tray in the office break room, that is game over. You know there's plenty to go around but I'm going to take more than my fair share. I know that I'm going to make myself sick. I know that there isn't going to be anything left over for the people in the morning meeting. I know I'm going to feel ashamed of myself. I know it's wrong, but I can't stop myself. Or maybe you know, as soon as your neighbor mentions the game that your favorite team just lost, it's over. I know I'm going to erupt. I know I'm going to say something rude and be spirited. I'm going to go off on them. Maybe you know, you already know, you're going to hurt someone and that this is wrong. But once it gets started, you can't stop it. Or maybe you know that at the end of a stressful day, when your roommate or your spouse is at home, it's game over. I'm going to call that person up. I'm going to open up my computer. I'm going to use and objectify another person. I know that it's wrong, and I know I'll end up feeling emptier than I did before, but I also know I can't stop myself. Friends, if you've been in that slavery, or you're still in that slavery, then what Paul says next is going to be the most beautiful news you can hope to hear. Jesus redeems. Verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. <coughs> Just the right time, in the exact moment in history, all according to God's perfect plan, Jesus came to redeem people from their slavery to sin. And redeem, admittedly, this is a very churchy sounding word. Redeem literally means to purchase something. You probably get coupons in the mail offering, you know, telling you to go redeem it at a store. To gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. And before we were redeemed from our sin, we were enslaved to our sin. Our sin owned us, and Jesus bought us back from the power of sin, paying for us with his own life. The infinite God, the infinite God of the universe became a human and lived under God's instruction, the Torah. He perfectly obeyed the whole thing, every requirement. He never sinned, making him the only one who could even possibly redeem us. And set us free. And you might say, okay, that makes sense. But I genuinely love and trust Jesus, but I still sometimes feel like I'm in the slavery that you described. What's the deal? And again, hey, if that's you this morning, I want you to hear this. You're not alone in that struggle. Sin isn't just bad, it's vicious and it's evil. It wants to consume and destroy you. And one of the most messed up things that can happen to us after we've been enslaved to our sin for so long is we develop a kind of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Are you familiar with this? Um, the Stockholm Syndrome is when someone who's been hurt or abused over a prolonged period of time actually starts to develop feelings of attachment or identity or love for their abuser. And I went down the WebMD rabbit hole this week and read some about Stockholm Syndrome. Listen to some of these immediate reactions. They're on the screen. Someone who has Stockholm Syndrome might have confusing feelings toward their abuser, including love, sympathy, or desire to protect them. Have you ever felt like that? towards your sin, you know it's wrong, you know it's going to hurt you, but you still love it, and you want to protect it and keep it in your life. And here's some of the long-term effects of someone who's been through Stockholm Syndrome. Embarrassment, confusion, guilt, and difficulty trusting others. I think it's eerie the degree to which we have these same feelings after we've gone back to our sin. We want to hide and disconnect with others because there's no way they would understand. I'm supposed to be a good church person. But the Bible says we've all been abused by our sin. So we have this good news that Jesus redeems us, that he buys us back and sets us free from our sin. And as good as that news is, there's actually more good news coming down the pipe. And it's the kind of good news we so desperately need. It's the kind of news that's going to help break us from this spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Not only did Jesus 
redeem us from our sin, but only Jesus paves the way for us to be adopted into God's family. It's easy to hear all these words that Paul uses throughout the book of Galatians. Justify, redeem, adopt. And think that he, he just means salvation. And he kind of does. But these are all different aspects of our salvation. You see, once we're redeemed, it just means we've been set free from our sin. Jesus could have sent us off onto our own. You know, go on, get out of here, on your way, you're free now. But we all know where we would go as soon as that happened. We sell ourselves back to our sin. And thank goodness that is not what Jesus does. Instead of sending us off on our merry way where we'd be most vulnerable, he makes it so that God the Father can adopt us into his family. Because of Jesus' redemption, we can experience the Father's adoption. This is how John Murray defines adoption as a doctrine of our faith. He says, by adoption, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty, and they are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. When God adopts men and women into his family, he ensures not only that they have rights and privileges of his sons and daughters, but also the nature and disposition consistent with such a status. It's the same way as when someone adopts a child into their family. The child gets everything that comes along with family membership. A new last name, space in the house, a place at the table, and they're taught the family values. There's not a secondary status if you've been adopted. You're a full member of the family. And being members of this new family, having God's spirit in us, and having brothers and sisters around us is what helps us break out of that cycle of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. In the book of Romans, Paul writes another very similar verse to what he's written here in Galatians. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's from Romans 8. Because Jesus paved the way for our adoption, we're not on our own in our battle with sin. Most importantly, we have the spirit of Jesus living inside us, transforming our hearts and our desires. And we also have our church family, brothers and sisters to chase after us when we start to wander off. Brothers and sisters who can remind us both of the Father's goodness, but also of sin's destructiveness. Let's again focus on Paul's vocabulary a minute. The word he uses, both in Romans and here in Galatians, uh, is Abba, Father. With the Holy Spirit in us, we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is so great. I love this. There are absolutely, definitely times when we ought to relate to God in a formal kind of way. When we talk about His glory, His holiness, His transcendence, His expectations of what a life of following Jesus looks like. But that is not the word in this verse. Abba is a word that means Father, 
but it's much more about a relational intimacy we have with a good father. And, I don't know, maybe it's just me, and there's not anything wrong with this, but when I picture a father, or a child, calling their father by the title father, I have this kind of stodgy scene from like a Charles Dickens novel pop into my head with like this little English boy, and he runs up to his father and addresses him, Father. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm sure that's not what everyone pictures when they, you know, hear that, uh, but you can probably imagine a similar kind of scene. And it's that kind of scene that's a thousand miles away from Paul's mind. When the Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, it's a cry of loving intimacy, not cold formality. It's when, after the gathering, I walk back into a car, the car's kids' wing, and I see a dad who's there to pick up his kid from after church, and they exclaim, Dad! And the dad looks down and smiles and says, Hey, buddy. That's the kind of family we're adopted into. When we're adopted into God's family, we have a real, intimate, good, gracious relationship with Him. He's not just Father. He's our Papa, our Dad. And I know for some of you, that might actually be really difficult to hear. Maybe you didn't grow up with a dad who reflected God the Father. Well, maybe you have a, had a cold, distant relationship with your dad. Maybe your dad hurt you a lot. Maybe you didn't have a dad in your home growing up at all. And if that's you, um, I am so sorry. Like, I'm, that's, I'm sorry about that. I don't know if I have the words to speak into every one of those situations right now, but I would give you an invitation. If you're here this morning because you love and trust Jesus, read the gospel. Read the gospel this week. If you're here because you love and trust Jesus, see how he relates and trusts and loves his Father. I want you to know that you can love and trust God the Father like Jesus did. Abba was such a rarely used word by the Jewish people in reference to God. But it's one we see Jesus use all the time in the Gospels. He's always calling God the Father. And there's one more aspect of our adoption that we need to touch on before we wrap up. I was talking to one of my coworkers this week at the taco shop, and she asked what I had been up to recently. I told her, well, I'm studying, um, I'm writing a sermon for next week. She said, oh, what are you preaching about? And I replied, Galatians 4, being adopted as heirs. And she was like, heirs? You mean like heirs to the throne? And for a second, and eventually I replied, yeah, actually, I guess very much like that, heirs to the throne. Uh, for, you know, we're not just adopted into any family. We're adopted into this royal family. 
And so what's our inheritance? To find out, we can look at Jesus. The first part of our inheritance is the personal presence of Jesus' spirit in us. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this. He says, In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is the first element of our inheritance, and it's a guarantee that the rest will come. The second part of our inheritance is the very same resurrection life that the Father gave to Jesus. It's a family inheritance. If the older brother gets it, that's what we're going to get. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, that's the firstborn's inheritance. And at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We have a confident hope that our Father will raise us in the same new life that we see Jesus receive in Scripture. And then the final aspect of our inheritance. This is where my coworker made me think for a minute. We are quite literally heirs to the throne. As we see part of our inheritance revealed in Revelation chapter 5, John writes, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you, they're singing to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He's taken not just us, but all Christians from all areas of the globe and all eras of history and adopted them into his family. And when you're a son or a daughter of a king, it means you have a place in ruling. And this is what we're made for in the first pages of Genesis. The spirit, resurrection life, being made to rule creation. That's our inheritance. That's what John Murray meant when he talked about us having the rights and privileges of God's family. <clears throat> okay. I know we've covered a lot this morning. We walked through Paul's assessment of our place apart from Jesus, and it was not pretty. Constrained by a set of instructions uh, or being at the mercy of a simplistic, worldly spirituality, ultimately stuck in slavery to our own sin. Those destructive desires within us that we can't escape on our own. Thank goodness Paul had something else to share with us. He tells us that it's only Jesus who redeems us, who buys us back by his own death from our sin. And when we repent, when we put our faith in Him, when we give our allegiance to Him as King, we're set free. And I know I keep sounding like an infomercial, but wait, there's more good news. 
Only Jesus paves the way for us to be adopted into God's family. It was the mission, it was Jesus' mission to pave that way for us. And since we're members of that family, it means it's now our mission. It's our mission to find those who are still enslaved to their sin, make them, uh, help them to know the road Jesus made and to show them the path into the family of God. Let's pray. God, you are a good father, the best father, and the kind of father we need, even if we don't always know how to relate to you that intimately. This morning, God, I thank you for the blessing of your word. Pray for our church, that for those who are here this morning and still in their slavery to sin, I pray that you would set them free from that and bring them into your family. God, I pray as we leave this place this afternoon that you would that we would uphold the values of your family, that we would participate in our family mission. God, take us to people who need to know about Jesus. Give us the words to share him to them. God, be with us the rest of this gathering as we worship you. Thank you for everything, especially Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.